Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Thank you so much for joining us today, for listening to the Heart of Genesis, Parshat Vayetze, Jacob's Ladder, with Rabbi Leila Galberner. I also want to thank our partners at Road of Shalom in Denver for co-sponsoring today's event. Rabbi Berner was ordained at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College and holds a second ordination from Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi of Blessed Memory. She received her doctorate in medieval Jewish history from UCLA with expertise in the history of Jews in medieval Spain. Her dissertation on the Western Shores, the Jews of Barcelona during the reign of Juame el Conqueridor, uh, 1213 to 1276, has been widely cited, and she has taught about the Spanish Reconquista in many Jewish communities. She has also taught in many communities about the golden age of Spanish Jewry under Muslim rule. Rabbi Galberner served as Dean of Students at the Aleph Alliance of Jewish Renewal Ordination and continues to teach Biblical and Medieval History, Feminist Thought, and Midrash. She has recently published Listening to the Heart of Genesis, A Contemplative Path. Excuse me. Dr. Galberner has taught in the Departments of Philosophy and Religion at American University and Emory University and in the Departments of Religion at Swarthmore and Reed Colleges. Rabbi, thank you for being here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Okay, great. Well, thank you for inviting me. And um, what we are going to do today is embark on a contemplative exploration of Parashat Vayetze. And uh, this practice, this method, actually started in the Middle Ages. It comes from a Christian practice, Lectio Divina. And what it is, is a combination in the Christian practice, it's simply the repeated uh, reading of a text and prayer on the text. In Judaism, I've developed a method where we listen to the text repeatedly, we listen to a teaching about the text, and then we go into silence to reflect on the text. You will hear the text three times, you will hear three different teachings, and then there will be a very personal question that each of you can reflect on as you reflect on the text. Uh, I have pioneered it in a bunch of different places, and it seems to be working very well as a new gateway into Torah. So I hope that you enjoy it and find value in it. As I said, we are going to enter into Parashat Vayetze. The context is Jacob fleeing from Esau after having stolen his older twin's birthright and their father Isaac's blessing. It is, Jacob is filled with fear and doubt. He is alone and lonely. Jacob experiences a time of deep interior searching, what we call in Hebrew a cheshbon nefesh, an inventory of the soul. He knows that the blessing is really Esau's and that his father Isaac's innermost blessing was meant for Esau. 
Jacob knows that he must escape Esau's pain and anger and that Isaac is pained because he has not given his blessing to the right son. So he is, Jacob is fleeing, he is afraid, he is lonely, and we now come to the first reading after a nigun. first reading. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He came upon a certain makom, a place, and stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that makom, that place, he put it under his head and lay down in that makom, in that place. He had a dream. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and angels of God were going up and down on it. And the Holy One was standing beside him and said, I am Yudhe the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying I will assign to you and to your offspring. Your descendants shall be as dust of the earth and you shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely God is in this place, Makom, and I did not know it. Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place, Makom. This is none other than the abode of God, and that is the gateway to heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He named that place Beit El, a first teaching. The word makom, or place, is mentioned six times in nine verses. What do we know about this word makom? In Talmud and Midrash, makom is a frequent name for God. As for example, when we take leave of a mourner 
the traditional expression is Hamakom Yinachemetchem, may the Makom, God, console you. God as Makom connotes the space and place of the whole universe. Makom is everything that is. In Torah, Moses hears the Holy One speak out of the burning bush. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place, the makom, on which you stand is holy ground. Here makom is indeed the earth itself, everything that is. Many ancient rabbinic midrashim identify hamakom with the specific place at which the Holy One created the world, Gan Eden. Hamakom is umbilicus mundi, the umbilical cord of the world. Other sages identify Hamakom with the place where Abraham took Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice in the Akedah, basing it on the two verses, Vayakam Vayelech El Hamakom Asher Amar Lo HaElohim. And Abraham rose and set out for the place, the Makom, of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the Makom, the place from afar. Here, Makom is once again a specific and very holy place, the place of korban, of sacrifice. Let's remember the meaning of this Hebrew word korban. It comes from the shoresh or the root Likarev, to come close. In biblical times, to sacrifice is try, to try to come closer to the Holy One. And the English word sacri, fachere, comes, is like sacrifice, to make sacred. For what is coming closer to God but making something sacred? In the Talmud, our sages believe that Makom is an already existing place of sanctity to which Yaakov's ancestors have come to worship, and that Jacob, Yaakov, suddenly realized that he had passed by this place that had become sacred to his family without a word of prayer. The words of the, of the Talmud, is it possible that I sped by this site where my ancestors pray and did not pray there myself. It is not the holiness of our setting that makes a place sacred, but the sincerity of our seeking that determines our ability to hear God's voice. Ask yourself, what is my truest, most authentic makom? my most secure place? Where do I feel most safe? What or who or where is my haven? What is my truth? I, 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 I,
Second reading. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He came upon a certain Makom and stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that Makom, he put it under his head and lay down in that Makom. He had a dream. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and angels of God were going up and down on it. And the Holy One was standing beside him and said, I am yud Vavhei, vav the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying I will assign to you and to your offspring. Your descendants shall be as dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east, to the north, and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely God is in this place and I, I did not know it. Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the abode of God, and that is the gateway to heaven. Early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He named that place Beit El. A second teaching. As Jacob sleeps, he dreams of a staircase leading up to heaven, and angels are ascending and descending on it. The Jewish notion of malachim, of angels, is different from the Christian image of sweet cherubic creatures with wings flying around the firmament. For us, malachim are divine messengers, they often come in human form, like the three visitors who appeared to Abraham after Ishmael's birth at the Terebinths of Mamre, who are referred to as Anashim, men. These men tell Abraham and Sarah that they will bear a child within a year's time. Both Abraham and Sarah laugh at this preposterous idea that elderly Sarah will become pregnant. But as we know, the prediction comes true with Isaac's birth. Immediately after this incident, two angels, Malachim, visit Abraham's nephew Lot in Sodom. Rabbinic opinion is almost unanimous that these two angels are two of the three 
who had just visited Abraham and Sarah. In the story of Jacob struggling or wrestling with a man, the sages identify Jacob's challenger in many ways, including as an angel. Angels come quietly, as did Abraham and Sarah's three visitors, bringing good news. See, for example, in the Talmud, Baba Metzia, that I identifies Michael as the angel who announces that Sarah will give birth. What does it mean that against all rules of syntax, our text says in Jacob's dream, the angels are ascending and descending to heaven? This means that the angels are here on earth with us. They ascend, then descend. Angels save us from doing destructive acts, as when Midrash tells us that Michael is the angel who stays Abraham's hand from slaying Isaac at the Akedah. And angels struggle mightily with us and wound us, as in Jacob's wrestling with the angel and hurts his hip. Angels soothe and comfort, as when Hagar is out in the wilderness without food or water, watching her beloved son Ishmael dying. God heard the cry of the boy, and an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heeded the cry of the boy where he is. Come, Lift up the boy and hold him by the hand, for I will make of him a great nation. And angels often bring us insights, insights, moments of clarity, moments of resolve, moments of knowing what we must do next. Ask yourself, who are my angels? Who has helped me? Who has challenged me? With which angels do I dance? With which angels do I wrestle? Who has been gentle to me? And who has been difficult for me? Yaakov left Beersheba 
and set out for Haran. He came upon a certain Makom and stopped there for the night, for the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of that Makom, he put it under his head and lay down in that Makom. He had a dream. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky and the angels of God were going up and down on it. And the Holy One was standing beside him and said, I am yud vav the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The ground on which you are lying, I will assign to you and to your offspring. Your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread out in the west to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. All the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you and your descendants. Remember, I am with you. I will protect you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said, surely, God is present in this makom, and I, I did not know it. Shaken, he said, how awesome is this place, this makom. This is none other than the abode of God, and that is the gateway to heaven. Early in the morning, Yaakov took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He named that place Beit El. teaching. When Yaakov awakes from his dream, he immediately says, Achen yesh Adonai b'makom hazeh v'anochi lo yadati. Surely God is in this place and I, I did not know it. Notice the grammatical redundancy. Anochi means I. It is a big first person pronoun. The word anochi is the word that God uses as in 
אנוכי אדוני אלוהיכם אשר הוצאתי אתכם מארץ מצרים. I am Adonai your God who took you out from the land of Egypt. And then there is Lo Yadati. I didn't know. That's also a first person personal pronoun. Surely God is in this place and I, I, I did not know it. Our sages millennia ago noticed the redundancy too. And it's always important to notice repetitions in Torah. They always mean something. Like when the angel had to call to Abraham twice to stay his hand from killing Isaac. Avraham, Avraham. Like when the Holy One had to call to Moshe twice at the burning bush to get his attention. So mesmerized by the sight is Moshe. This is important. Pay attention, the text is telling us. No less so here. Reb Shlomo of Radomsk, an early 19th century Hasidic leader, also notices the redundancy. Surely God was in this place, and me, I did not know. This means if the presence of the Holy One indeed dwells here, if I have invoked the holiness in this place, it must be because my I did not know. I obliterated everything that was in me, my sense of self-awareness, any consciousness of ego, any trace of self-intention. Everything was now only for the sake of the holy name itself, for the sake of unifying the holiness within all being and its presence. Contemporary rabbis, Lawrence Kushner and Rabbi Kerry Olitsky, elucidate Reb Shlomo's teaching. Quote, Here, Reb Shlomo brings us to the edge of language. By changing the translation, offering an interpretive translation, he suggests that we must get rid of ourselves in order to know God. We must exit the self-reflective mode of consciousness, for it impairs our ability to attain awareness of God's presence. In other words, we have to dance with so much of ourselves that when the music has stopped, we realize that we were totally unaware that we and God were dancing together." End quote. The bottom line of Reb Shlomo's teaching is that sometimes we have to push our egos aside in order to make space for God, and perhaps for others, humans in the form of angels, insights, or just other human beings that we haven't noticed enough. We have to get out of our own way. Ask yourself, have there been moments when I have had to get out of my own way to deeply perceive God or other people? Have I had moments of deep insight, of clarity, when there was space in my heart for God, for other people, when I could surely say, surely there is God in this place, and now I know it.
Take a few minutes and if you feel comfortable to share how this gateway into Torah feels for you. To listen to the text repeatedly, to hear teachings about it, to hear an igun, and then to be asked questions about your own life that have to do very directly with the text. How has it sat for you? And I invite anyone who wishes to speak up. Um, if I could say something, I loved it. it and I, I've been studying Tanakh since I was in grade school. I, I went to parochial school and I've been studying all my life. This is a beautiful way of learning it. Um, brings it home. It we, Recently, I've been learning um, a lot of the writings of Pia Sesner, Rabbi, Rabbi, and he also talks about internalizing and, and feeling what you're reading with Umash. And, and this really, really does it. It really brings it home and internalizes it, and it gives it um, a spiritual awakening within. So thank you so much. This has been a lovely teaching. Thank you. I'm going to say I loved it also. I always love this kind of stuff anyway. Now, one of the things that um, I notice, I've always noticed about Torah is that I get weird answers to things that, you know, I wasn't expecting. And that's one of the reasons why I love doing this sort of, you know, work and everything, because I do get weird answers that I wasn't expecting about things. And so that's kind of a lot of what I like, 
was seeing. Now, I kept turning my camera off because I wanted to, like, you know, close my eyes and just, like, listen, not have any distractions and everything. So I would say that probably my, you know, tough point on this is distraction. And so that's why I made sure I limited <laughs> the distractions. But, yeah, thank you very much for doing this. So. Steve, I, I think I saw your hand up. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you very much. I have uh, two general questions and then hopefully not a negative commentary. Uh, number one, the Nagoons that you sing and that Shmuley sings, are they improvisational or are they actual written down pieces of music? It depends on the Parsha. Sometimes they are traditional Hasidic Nigunim. In this case, this was a Nigun that came to me years ago and uh, particularly because of that one line, surely God is in this place and I, I did not know it. And I uh, just started singing it and it's become the Nigun for that line. Um, I, I love that. I, I almost think that if my football team had a Nagoon before a game, they would do a <laughs> lot better, it would calm them down. Uh, the second thing I wanted to ask is, you mentioned stairwells a lot, or stairways to heaven. Were there actual big stairways that uh, ancient Hebrewists could have drawn on to mention them in text? Where well, did they get the idea of stairway? The ancient, the before the Israelites, the Babylonians had built these large towers uh, called ziggurats, and they were they were these multi-stared uh, structures, and the story of the Tower of Babel is actually modeled on a ziggurat, which is a huge tower. And in the story of the Tower of Babel, they said, let us build a tower and uh, let us uh, take the, la the languages of all the peoples. And uh, that's where we get the term Babel. There's so many different languages. And in, there are different, different ways of interpreting the Tower of Babel, but the standard way or the more conventional way of interpreting it is that we were trying to be too godlike going up to heaven in that way. But they did have this notion of stairways in their mind. Uh, that's probably where Jacob got in his dream the notion of a ladder leading up to heaven. My only final comment, and, and you could call on others because I've taken up too much time already. No, that's all right. Go ahead. I, uh, how does a person like me who does not believe in a personal God use or relate to these texts? That's a very big question, but what I would tell you is that, that think of the places that inspire you, whether it's nature, whether it's a feeling between you and another human being, all of that in my mind, and I, I call all of that God. You may not want to use that word, but the energy or the spirit that is in the universe, whether it's the deep relationships between human beings or whether it's uh, a, a, a magnificent place in nature, in my mind, that's all divinity. So you don't need to believe in a personal God 
per se to relate to this to divinity i uh, one of the most one of the most uh amazing experiences of my life was at Carlsbad Caverns when I was sitting at the mouth of the cave and the bats came out at dusk to go out to feed in the in the in the desert and I heard the flapping of thousands of the wings of thousands of bats as they came out into the desert it was incredibly beautiful and I experienced God now I didn't experience God as an old white man with a long white beard, but I experienced something extraordinary that I choose to call God. Uh, David? Uh, yes, that experience that you uh, described with the bats, uh, I've heard a number of people talk about sort of falling into a almost a kind of transcendental experience uh, on... Uh, for no explainable reason, uh, but it but it just happens, and, and you feel a closeness, uh, a oneness with everything around you. It's really a sense of awe, and um, uh, it's really an amazing uh, experience. You know, we're told that we connect with God through the performance of the mitzvot, uh, and of course, we can understand and perform the mitzvot at various levels. Many of us traditionally do so at the levels of Pshat and Remez and Drash, but at the mystical level, which you experienced, uh, you connected with God directly at the mystical level of Sod. And, and I think uh, that we all have the ability to do that either spontaneously by good luck, like you experienced, and or through some planned meditative quieting of the mind which can also take us to the transcendent, which is very powerful. And my last statement about this is that, you know, as you read this text, uh, you know, which of course many of us have read over and over again, it reminds us, reminds me of the of the Kutzko Rebbe, who said to his students when asked, you know, where where do we find God? And he said, God exists wherever we let God in. And that's exactly what Jacob figured out is that God is everywhere. It's just that when Jacob can let God in, then God appears to Jacob. And we too don't have to be sitting at the side of a cave and spontaneously find ourselves in a transcendental experience. We can take steps to uh, to um, gently quiet the mind and let ourselves uh, uh, experience that sense of, of of oneness that is our essence. I, very, very well said. And, you know, the famous, famous rabbi, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said that very often faith comes after awe, after one has experienced a moment of awe and inspiration, whether it be in the face of another human being, in nature, whatever it is. Um, and that very famous line, which uh, from Les Miserables, which was taken taken from the Bible, taken from Torah, actually, when you've loved someone, you've seen the face of God. Um, Jacob and Esau, when they finally do have their reunion, it says, "To see your face is like seeing the face of God." So faith doesn't come only from 
mystical, magical experiences. It sometimes comes from the simplest of moments when you're looking at someone you love. Yes, Joan. I realize it, but Ethan had been saying something in the chat, and I would love for you to comment on that. So, Ethan, could you tell her what you put there in the chat? Absolutely. Thanks for saying that. I appreciate it. Um, about was I wrote in the chat. I, I'm wondering if uh, there are any practices of using physical movement to supplement the form of study that we just did together. Um, I wrote that I found your teaching to both relax and stretch my mind. Uh, and I'm wondering if there would be a benefit to our learning of Torah and our understanding of, of the Torah, uh, if we did that with our, our body as well. So I think, I think absolutely. And then, uh, uh, Glaya wrote about yoga, absolutely, but uh, I just finished teaching this for a week at the Aleph Ordination Program, and while I was teaching it, two of the students got up and danced. So it really depends on your inclination and, and you know, uh, and what happened after each time was that we, we all stretched and it wasn't just kind of the stretching that you do to, to ease your muscles. It was much slower, contemplative kind of stress. So a stretch, excuse me. So absolutely you can adapt uh, embodiment into, into this practice. I did want to say to you that because I was a little concerned about time, I did the silences shorter than I normally would have that usually I spend five to six minutes in between each question and the silence. The silence is five to six minutes following the questions. And the practice for each Parsha usually takes about an hour and a quarter. So if you want to try it uh, with a group of people, um, this is shameless self-promotion, but my book, which is uh, Listening to the Heart of Genesis, A Contemplative Path, has a facilitator's guide in the back and uh, has 17 chapters in it for all the Parshiyot in Genesis, in Sefer Breshit, and you could start your own group and work with it this. My goal is to get it out into the world and to have people really work in a contemplative manner. Thank you for putting that up there, Alex. I appreciate it. Um, and the idea is to break the wordiness that we Jews have. We Jews are wonderful, thoughtful mind people, but sometimes we don't go enough into our hearts in the process of studying Torah. It's a little bit like normal Torah studies, a little bit like a ping pong match. You know, one person has an idea and then another person says, well, I'm not so sure about that. I think that's just, and it's a great mind intellectually stimulating way of studying Torah, but it doesn't allow for the contemplative. It doesn't allow for the silence. It doesn't allow for the meditative. And that was my goal in establishing this particular approach to Torah. And I encourage you to try to uh, bring it more into your own practice. Okay, can I jump in again? Okay. Sure, absolutely. 
All right. So we're talking about relaxation and everything. I'm thinking also about, well, does it necessarily have to be relaxing? Because what I'm kind of thinking, like, I'm just got my wheels turning right now, though. Like, if we're reading a part, like, say, for instance, the part when there's Amalek comes up and out of, like, nowhere and starts a battle and everything like that. And then you're doing this, like, really extreme workout, <laughs> like, basically, like, and you're like really like battling it out and everything like that or like a part when people are mad at each other like you know Leia and Rahel and then you you know like basically though you're competing in your you know game or whatever I mean I think there's a lot that could come out of doing something like that now I like workouts so that's just me but anyway <laughs> you're right it doesn't always have to be relaxing on on the contrary there are times when this kind of reflection and contemplation brings up tough stuff. And Torah brings up tough stuff for us. It's not an easy set of books for us. And uh, it brings up moral dilemmas and ethical dilemmas and situations that aren't so easy. For example, in the class that I taught last week, we actually explored Lot's wife and we, the tragedy of losing two married daughters and seeing her home town destroyed and devastated. And uh, when she's turned into a pillar of salt, what is that? That's profound grief. Her, the tears that she comes down with is the salt that petrifies her, but not necessarily as a, a petrification of stone. It's a petrification of her life. She lost two children and she lost a whole life and a whole home. And we asked the question in the class, what happens to a human being who tragically has lost somebody, uh, uh, a child or a loved one? Uh, one person called it a life sentence. Does, does one, is one petrified for a lifetime? And so this is not easy work. Sometimes it's relaxing, sometimes it's affirmative, and sometimes it's very disturbing. So thank you for bringing that, that, that up. Uh, the Israeli Tanakh teacher who uses drama to teach, I don't remember his name, but I can tell you that here in the United States, there is Peter Pitzele who talks about bibliodrama. And he, that's the person you were thinking of? Yes, no, someone else. But bibliodrama is... The drama, Say and that she's again. an Israeli. She's an Israeli in Israel, but she uses the term bibliodrama. Exactly. The name of the person in Israel. Her first name is Tamar. Nachon. Nachon. Tamar Peleg. It just came to me. Nachon. And she learned the she learned the method from Peter Pitzele, who has written okay. books about bibliodrama, and it's amazing. Uh, it's an amazing method as well. So between bibliodrama, Kriyat HaKodesh, contemplative Torah, and others, you can find a whole array of gateways into Torah. Okay, Rabbi Galberter, thank, thank you, you so thank much. Thank you again for giving me this time. It was a joy to teach you and to learn from you.
Oh, thank you. It was, thank you. It was a joy to have you. I uh, just want to let everyone know before we sign off about our next class, which will be on Mon <clears throat> excuse me, Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We will be hearing from Dr. Johnny Schnitzer for his class. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you invited God to a social get together? So we hope you can all join us for that as well. And thank you again. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybaitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.